0: Today we're going to be in Romans chapter 2 still, and believe me, I attempted, I really did attempt to finish it out, to finish the whole chapter, but it's impossible. There's no way I'm going to be able to finish the chapter. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're going to probably take, as I do the outline, a couple more weeks in chapter 2 And the reason why is because here in this section, we have to do something that's a little unorthodox, but it's necessary. And I'll get to that in a minute. But Romans chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 11 and 12 and 16. And I've titled the message, and it's a long title, but it's The Righteous Judgment of God this portion called not based on heritage part one so this is part one so part two will be next week and you'll have to tune in then to see what it's all about but i'll get to that before i get to my outline i wanted to talk a little bit about the book of exodus for a moment just in our introduction and before we get to these few verses that we're going to look at today And I want to remind you that God, through Moses, he gave the law. He gave a covenant. He gave the old covenant, or what is called the first covenant. In Exodus 19, 3 through 25, he establishes that covenant. In Exodus 21 through 17, he gives the stipulations of the covenant. In Exodus 20, 22 through 23, 3, he expounds on it. And then he gives confirmation of it in Exodus 24, 1-12. through 12. So in all of that, God's righteousness and his righteous judgment is laid out for us. In fact, in Deuteronomy, Moses begins reviewing the Ten Commandments again. And he goes through all of the laws. And in chapter 8, you remember what, the, what he was doing? He reminds us of the blessings on obedience and then the curses on disobedience it was really very simple do this and be blessed turn away and don't be blessed all of this throughout all the years we see in chronicles we see in kings 1st and 2nd kings how the nations go back and forth this king did great this king did not this king served God This king did not. And we see blessings and we see cursings. And we think about all those years and God's patience with the people. Think about God's patience with us all these years. Continuous patience with us. All the things we've been talking about up to this point. And then as we look at all of that, All of this stuff begins to culminate where? In the book of Jeremiah, remember. In the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesies during the last four decades of the history of Israel, and it's a chaotic time. He has several years of ministry there. And think about Jeremiah's ministry. If you look at it from a a standpoint of the world, it's a failure. Nobody turns back. He's told to go and to preach and to share God's judgment. People are telling him he's a traitor. You know, he's turning away from his nation. And then at the end of his ministry, what happens to the nation of Israel? They go into captivity. I mean, who wants a ministry like that? Do you think from the world's standpoint that's a successful ministry? Yet he's told to be obedient, and he goes. Because Jerusalem falls to Babylon in 586 B.C. Jeremiah, again, remember, he's branded as a traitor. And he never thought anything, or they never thought anything like that would ever happen to them. It can't happen to us. We're the chosen people. That's what they trusted in. This is what the Apostle Paul is reminding the Pharisees about. They never thought anything like this would ever happen to them. In Jeremiah 4, 7, God, through Jeremiah, says this, The lion has come up from his thicket, and the, and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. Is this now a message that you want to provide, that you want to give to anybody? No. But it's an important message because there has to be opportunity for repentance. I mean, we have been going through repentance and judgment and deeds being judged, all of that through these chapters, and it can get depressing. Can you imagine this ministry for a moment? The traditions and the laws practiced were only in pretense. Jeremiah tells that to us in chapter 3 but he's saying to these guys he's telling them up front everything's going to be laid waste what does he tell them the lion has come up from his thicket. he's already on the way the destroyer is already on the way think about jesus christ in his second advent he is already on the way it's already set god's word is set he's on the way we don't know when different times of judgment right for the believer for the non-believer there's different settings but we don't know when he's going to come back and in this setting it tells us again that what they were practicing was only pretense it was only surfacy they were externally okay with internal decay externally okay with internal decay and i wonder where our lives are at today Jeremiah 4.14 says, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness, that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? And in Jeremiah 4.18, he says, Your ways and your doings have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness, because it is bitter, because it reaches to your heart. Why was judgment coming? because God's unfair, because God's an angry God, because God wants to wipe people out and He hates people. No, the Old Testament tells us that He's a Savior. He's a Redeemer. He loves, not wanting anybody to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so He needs to make a way. And He warns, and He's patient, and He's kind, and He's loving. But we get these other concepts. And what was the reason why judgment was becoming? coming because in Jeremiah 418 again he says your ways your doings your wickedness and it reaches where to your heart not because you weren't doing the actions and everything incorrectly but because your heart you weren't devout like Simeon was devout remember the blood that they that they you know what we're going to save that for another message i'm going to go into a whole different thing but let's stick to this right now They were devout, and we'll get into that devout. Judah didn't learn from their sister Israel. Judgment, again, God says, is on the way. It's imminent, and it's because there's no repentance of heart. And if God says it, it's going to happen. Just because we don't see it happening right away doesn't mean it's not on the way. doesn't mean it's not coming. This is representative, then, of God's righteous judgment, and he shows no partiality. This is what we're going to get into as we continue down this road. The rest of this chapter, I broke up into three sections, and it's all regarding judgment, God's righteous judgment. And it's as if he is getting them to the Jews. As he comes back to the Jews, we'll see... It's almost as if he's getting them to back them up in a corner where they have no argument. And I, again, broke it up into three sections regarding judgment. The first section we're going to continue here is, it's not based on race. So it's not based on race, it's not based on religion, and it's not based on ritual. It's not based on race is what we're going to talk about today. And it's only the first part, and we're finding that in Romans 2, 11 through 12 and 16. We'll do the second part next week. Not based on religion is Romans 2:17 through 24 and not based on ritual or tradition in Romans 2:25 through 29. That's where we'll talk about the devout ones and what happened to those Old Testament saints. God's righteous judgment will not relent because of any of these things: heritage, privilege, tradition, It's a matter of the heart, and even the Old Testament proclaims it. It's devoutness to God, which we'll see more of when we get to verses 25 through 29. It's not based on race or heritage. All things that you probably are aware of and know, that's what we'll look at today. And in this particular message, we'll be separated in two parts. Today's message again, the first part and I'll explain more about why that is we have to keep in mind that this entire section is not what it's not dealing with and what it is dealing with do you remember what it's not dealing with it's not dealing with salvation this entire section is dealing with judgment it's very important to keep that in mind because if we don't keep that in mind Paul jumping back and forth in his argument is going to confuse us. So we must remember, we got to lock that down in our brains, that this whole section is talking about God's righteous judgment. We haven't come to the salvation part yet. So hold on to that. But in it, we will talk about salvation. So it's dealing with judgment, sin. Sin is going to be judged no matter who we are. God's judgment is always fair. It's always according to a standard, a standard that he sets. Jews and Gentiles, from the standpoint of condemnation, are in precisely the same position. It's not based on race or nationality. These are the arguments. These are the points. Because it must be repentance first. And so as Paul rounds off his argument, as he Rounds third, if you will. this And he's headed for home, which we'll get to. All of this is for what purpose? Again, to take away any argument that they might have. To back them up into a corner where they have to make a choice. It's either fight or flight. And if you're fighting, then you're fighting the Lord. In this area, when it comes to judgment and salvation, Will you fight or will you crumble before God in humility? That's the point. He's pulling apart every single argument. And my hope is that we've done a good enough job explaining all this. Some might even say you talk about it too much. Just move on. You're almost there. Get to that verse. But we have to take our time here. So today we're going to be breaking these things down even more. In verse 11, we're going to be talking about God's judgment is equitable. Verse 12, we'll be talking about God's judgment is equal. And then in verse 16, God's judgment is emancipating. So his judgment is equitable or impartial. His his judgment is equal or fair. His judgment is emancipating, and it frees. And we're going to talk about something that we may have never even thought about. How Jesus Christ clears God's name. How Jesus the Son clears God the Father's name. Let that settle in your head. We'll get to that last. Now, there's a story that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the story of the straight gate and the narrow road? It's a narrow road. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Why don't you turn there for a moment? The straight gate and the narrow road. Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14. As you turn there, they'll probably have it on the screen as well. But it says this, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. So in other words, what is he saying? Jesus is saying here that there's a wide road leading to hell and there's a narrow road leading to heaven. You know what Jesus doesn't tell us here in this area? He doesn't tell us where these roads are in relation to each other. I mean, if you think about it, I've often thought about it as, I'm on this narrow road going this way, people are on, you know, there's a fork in the road, right? And people are going this way in the narrow road, and then the wide road going this way. But if that's true, then how are we supposed to talk to anybody on that road about Christ? I mean, is there a median there that we don't see? I mean, think about it. If that's the case, then how do we reach the lost? Do I... Grab a rock and throw it at them and say, "Hey, stupid! Look over here." I mean that. I guess you can look at it that way, but I don't. I can't look at it that way because the Bible tells us in Acts fourteen twenty two. Remember this: we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Many hardships. I thought when you came to Christ, everything was great and perfect. No, we have to go through many hardships. We move on, and I'll explain. Proverbs 24, 11. it says, Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. It's literally It literally means to restrain them, to hold them back. It's as if you're putting your arms on their shoulders and you're saying, hey, stop. How can I do that if somebody's going that way and I'm going that way? If hardship and restraining are involved, Wouldn't another image make more sense? What's that image then? Shouldn't the narrow road be going right up in the middle of the wide one? Think about it for a moment. That would bring hardship, wouldn't it? This would allow us opportunity to hold people back. Think of it this way. Have you ever been in a crowd or a venue or a theme park even? Think about that. And everyone's headed in one direction. They're getting off a ride. You're trying to go this way. Everybody's coming this way. It's crowded. You bump into people. You tap them and you're saying, excuse me, I need to get by you. Why are you standing in the middle of everything with your strollers just talking? <laughs> you ever think about that? I think about that. But what does this do? It gives us op- opposition? Yes, but also opportunity, opportunity to see him face-to-face. This is the image. This is the picture. This is the opposition, but opposition always brings opportunity. See, when we have opposition, are we not being tested? God tests our hearts. When we have opposition, shouldn't we look at that as opportunity and think, okay, what's the Lord teaching me here, and how can I reach somebody through that? Does he just put us through things to mess with us like we do with our kids? Ah, I'm going to mess with you, get you a little angry. You know, we like to mess with kids like that sometimes, which is terrible. And I used to do it too. I still do it. (laughs) still do it. But do you think God does that to us? I don't think God does that to us. I think God's teaching us to be less of us, more of him, and look for those opportunities. See, opposition brings us face-to-face with somebody, and there's opportunity. Why say all this? What's the point? Would you just get to the verses, and let's get out of here and celebrate Father's Day? I know. But why say all this? Because I believe that this is what the Apostle Paul is attempting to do here, to get everyone in opposition to look at the evidence. Remember we talked about that? Hey, stop and look again. Look again at the evidence. We're all under sin. We're all under the same judgment. All of our deeds will be judged, whether good or bad, whether believer or non-believer. We talked about that in depth already. It's not based on our, it, our salvation. is isn't based on that, but we discussed that. This is the entire point of this chapter. It's dealing with the righteous judgment of God. And the argument continues. And we have to, again, keep this in view because it will help us get through this chapter correctly. Otherwise, we'll think about it incorrectly and we'll come up with all kinds of incorrect doctrine. So verse 11, we're finally getting to it. It says, For there is no partiality with God. Again, verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Now stop there. Verses 11 through 16, they have a parenthesis between them. If you have the authorized version, if you have the King James or the New King James versions, you'll see a parenthesis between them in verses 13 through 15. But to better understand what Paul is saying, we need to carve carve that portion out for a moment. I'm not changing God's word. I'm not adding to or taking away. But what we're going to do is we're going to carve that portion out so we can see what that says. And then we can reinsert it for better clarity. And we'll reinsert it next week. Because if we don't do this, we may miss the entire point that could lead us to false doctrine, which it has done already. And we have to be careful. It is that God is impartial and will judge as such. That's the point. God's judgment is equitable because He is impartial. Now, linking verses 11, 12, and 16 provide us the main theme in these verses. And just those verses by themselves are grammatically complete. You can get the picture of what he's trying to say with just those verses. But he has these parentheses, and we must look at those too. But we're not going to, again, we're not going to do that today. When he talks about partiality, there's no partiality with God. Let's discuss that first. Partiality, the original word, actually means to receive a face. To receive a face. And with God to receive a face, there's no partiality. In other words, he doesn't consider a face. He's not influenced by an expression. He's not influenced by that face. That's exactly why the Lady of Justice is often displayed with a blindfold so that she doesn't see a face. She can't see the face. She's not tempted to be partial against the accused. She cannot consider the face. She has to look at the evidence. This is our Lord in his righteous judgment. Now here's the issue that we're up against. It's the same one today as he's up against then. You and I, if we really are truly honest, we are partial. We can be influenced. Because we come to every situation with our biases, with our prejudices, with our preconceived ideas. Let me give you an example. What we see all the time in courtroom settings. Think about it for a moment. You ever wonder why in trials, they make the defendant oftentimes look very homely? And oh, look at them. Poor them. There's a reason why they do it. They're attempting to appeal to the sympathies of the court and the judge. It's exactly what they're doing. It's a show. Defense attorneys know they can influence an opinion because we are partial. We are. Let me put it to you another way. For you parents, for you grandparents, which I hear is a whole different experience, and I don't want to know anytime soon. Take your children or your grandchildren, for example. You warn them, you warn them, you warn them, don't do this, don't do that. Oh, but grandma, oh, but grandpa. You know, you consider the face. You look at their little face. Oh yeah, you're shaking your head, you know it. You consider the face, oh, I'm partial, and then I crumble at that face. I crumble at that look because we relate things in our human standards and because we relate things to our human standards we believe the same thing with God. We believe that God will crumble at our face. Oh Lord God, I I didn't uh, accept you while I was here on earth, but I'm here at the judgment seat, at the great white throne judgment and you know, would you please forgive me? I really was a good person. Yeah, but you never accepted Christ. You never accepted my Son. Be gone. I never knew you. And it's too late. See, we can't put our human standards on God. It's not the same thing. I mean, certainly God would consider not consider sending me to hell. Really? Why would He consider that? I mean, you know, I'm a good guy, and you know what? I'll wait, and I'll appeal to Him at the end. But guess what? It's going to be too late. There's a story that's told of this ancient Roman ruler named Brutus the Elder. I like that name, Brutus. But Brutus the Elder, he discovered that his two sons were conspiring to overthrow the government. This offense at that time carried the death penalty. At the trial, the young men tearfully pleaded with their father, calling him endearing names and appealing to his paternal love. Most of the crowd that gathered together at the court also pleaded for mercy partiality but because of the severity of the crime and perhaps because being the ruler's sons made the men even more accountable and guilty of worse treason the father ordered and then witnessed their execution as someone has commented about the incident the father was lost in the judge The love of justice overcame all the fondness of the parent. Does this not describe God? His righteous judgment? Oh, what a place to be. Oh, what kind of message is this going to be? But remember I told you, Jesus came to clear God's name. We'll get there. See, concerning the face does not work that way with god this is the point paul is making remember with me in verse two judgment he says is always according to truth that is the righteous judgment of god god's judgment is equitable because he's impartial and he will judge as such this is what the apostle paul is saying here there is no apart there is no partiality with god He goes on in verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Okay, what? Here he goes, right? The Apostle Paul going back and forth and back and forth. And we can get lost in this. We can get frustrated with this. And then we just want to move on and get past this chapter. But in verse 12. The Apostle Paul connects this sentence up. He connects it with the last verse. It's a universal statement. At that time, it was Jew and Gentile, remember. And under the law, there was under the law or not under the law. That was it. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 even says, I become to those who are under the law like that. To those who are not under the law, I come to them like that. That's what he talks about. And those who had the law will be judged accordingly and different than those without. Interesting concept. Therefore, God's judgment is then equal. It's fair. That's why in this section I said God's judgment is equal. It's fair. In other words, judgment will be according to the amount of the light given. You understand what I'm saying? It will be judged according to the amount of the light given. And it seems to lead us to think that there are severities of punishment. And we believe that the Bible teaches that. In fact, we believe Jesus was teaching that in Luke 12, 47, 48. And I believe you turned to Matthew, if you're back in Romans, just remain there. I'll read this to you. But Jesus stated this principle very clearly as he used the illustration of the slaves of a master who returned from a long journey in Luke 12:47 and 48 he says that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few notice how it doesn't say he won't receive any because he didn't know. No, he will receive few. It goes on. And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Scriptures that we always repeat, but we always just use the last one, just the last part. We don't remember about the flogging. Now these these verses... They begin to get us in trouble if we do not look at them correctly. Judgment. Remember, this has to do with judgment, not salvation. We're not there yet. Here's where questions begin about those unreachable tribes in the rainforest. Well, what about them? They never heard about Christ, so why would God judge them? We begin to ask those questions, but nowhere here in this section... Is it talking about salvation? So we have to be careful not to go down those roads just yet. But if you do go down the road, then you have to ask yourself, what is it that you and I know about salvation? That there's no other way but Jesus. That's what we do know. And we have to always bring that up. Well, if they never heard about Jesus, how can they know about Jesus? And that doesn't seem fair that God would judge them in that case no, 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 we can't go down that road just yet. See, there's only one way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's no other way. It's very clear. That's the way of it. And I can give no other answer where the Bible is silent. And the Bible is silent on there. Nobody can answer that question. Well, you can think it, But you cannot answer that question. Nobody knows. The Bible doesn't talk about it. What we do know is that there's one way. And what we do know is that God is just and fair. He is just and he is fair. So you and I, I must be careful when I form my own opinions when it comes to matters of eternity. I cannot give conjecture there. When I'm talking about somebody's life, And we're doing a character study. That's okay to put conjecture in there. Why? Because you and I understand human beings. And we can, through what was going on at that time and historical information, we can come up with, it may have been this, it may have been that. But on matters of eternity, we cannot. Do you remember who made that mistake? Job made that mistake. Job made that mistake, and God rebuked him for it. And because he made that mistake, Jehovah's Witnesses have this heresy now. They believe that the body just rests. If you're not one of the 144,000, the body just goes to rest. He said, Job said that in death, the wicked and the weary and all the counselors, all the good and the bad, man, just They just go to rest. It would be better, God, if I would never have been born. I'm going through all this stuff. And he begins to go off on all of this. And what does God do? God answers him. In chapter 38, 39, and 40, God asks him many questions. But here's what he begins with, and it's amazing. Job chapter 38, 1 through 3, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by my words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I'll question you, and you answer me. And he goes off on him. And he tells him, you're wrong. And you should have never said anything like that. See, when I get up here, I have to be careful. When you go out there and you form your own opinions, you have to be careful when it comes especially to matters of eternity. We cannot give people our own opinions. We must give them what the Bible actually says. Again, there are areas where it's completely agreeable to use conjecture, but not in matters of eternal uh, life. We should never do that. We stick to what we do know. And what do we know here? We know it's talking about judgment. What else do we know? It's talking about judgment. Judgment according to the light given. You see, today, if you really consider it, we live in a time where the most light about God has ever been given. So who's accountable the most? We are, because we've heard about Jesus. We've heard about his work on the cross. We know what he's done. We are responsible There was the old covenant, there's the new covenant and we have the most responsibility, therefore the most judgment if we deny Christ. Although all unbelievers will be in hell the hottest part is is reserved for those who had the most light. It's reserved for the for those who wasted the greatest spiritual opportunity that they ever had. In other words, the, the most light given has the most responsibility, therefore the most punishment. In Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31, we see this. For if we go on sinning, it says, willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace, the denial of Christ. Dying without Jesus as your Savior is one thing. Dying without Him after you've heard the good news over and over, that receives more severe punishment. It would have been better if you would have just stopped going to church. Don't, if you're not going to come to Christ, remember, wrath is piling up. That's what He tells us. We're not responsible for what we don't know, but we're we're responsible for what we do know. Remember, willingly ignorant. They were being willingly ignorant. And what does he tell us? They're storing up wrath in the day of wrath. God's wrath will be equal and fair according to what we have known and been exposed to. That's his judgment on the unbeliever very serious but as we come to 16 now as we take the parentheses out what does it tell us it says in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel it's not his gospel he says that three times in different letters total but the apostle Paul is just saying this is the gospel according to me and my gospel actually includes judgment my gospel hasn't changed. It hasn't changed from the other guys. But it includes judgment. So motive. Motive is a valid mode of judgment for God to use. The intent of the heart. He sees it. Judgment is given then to Jesus, who's God incarnate. And who better to judge a man's heart but Jesus? Jesus. Because we can't fool him. He knows everything. We said, God, oh, this God's a mean old man sitting up there on his throne judging us and he doesn't understand us, but he does. He knows exactly who we are. In 1 Chronicles 28, 9, when we think about the heart, we think about God seeing the heart and understanding the heart and knowing our secrets and knowing our thoughts because it says here, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men, by Jesus Christ, according to my Gospel, He knows not only what I do, he sees the heart, the intent of the heart, and as David in first chronicles twenty eight nine is counselling Solomon to serve God, he says, with a whole heart and a willing mind, serve the Lord, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts in psalm one thirty nine one through three David writing again says, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Jeremiah 17.10 I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. He understands. He knows the heart. He sees inside of us. Three times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Your Father who sees in secret will repay you. God can judge perfectly the intents of the heart. That's why the unbeliever at the great white throne will have everything that they've ever done written in front. And it will include everything, all the secrets. All the secrets. You're not getting away with anything. And as it indicates here, it will be Jesus Christ doing the judging in this verse. How do we know that? John 5.22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son What does that tell us? Jesus has full control of the judgment. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God incarnate. We'll get to that in a moment. In John chapter 5, 26, 29, it says, "...for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man." Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation Now have you ever considered this that in his death in Jesus Christ's death as well as his life and his ministry have you considered that God cleared or that Jesus cleared God's name Have you considered that Jesus cleared God's name? Think about it for a moment. Consider the thought. It's an amazing thought. Many have claimed that God is unfair, that he is up there and he can't judge from that standpoint because he doesn't understand. He has no idea what we go through here, doesn't understand our situation, doesn't understand our temptation, so it's unfair to God for God to judge me for anything. He doesn't understand. He's perfect. I can't live up to those expectations. There's no possible way. So you know what I'll do? Is when I get there in front of him, I will think he will consider my face, and I'll use all this as my excuse that he can accept me. Because that angry old God up there doesn't understand. He is so unfair. He doesn't understand that these temptations, this this flesh... And what it causes me to do? He's got no idea. And so God says, okay. And Jesus, God in the flesh, he gets off of his throne and he comes down to us to walk the earth in his ministry. And what do we know about Jesus? God incarnate, God in the flesh. He's tempted in every way we are. That's what the Bible tells us. Therefore, who understands us? God understands us. Does he not? Think about that. He comes down to do what? To clear God's name. And therefore, judgment has been given to him by God the Father. And as a result, we now cannot make the claim anymore that God does not understand me. He does understand. He made you. What does the Bible say about us? He made our frame, we're made in His image. He knows us. Our God came and walked the earth for this very reason and He made the way. No other religion can say that. Their God, we're trying to get to their God. That's what they're trying to do earn their way. But ours came to us. So He knows our feelings, He knows our thoughts, He knows our temptations, He knows our joys, He knows our troubles. And as a result, what are his judgments then? They are then fair and they are just. And as a result of that, he clears God's name. Oh, but I do understand. Oh, but I do know. And if I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, he will clear my name too. My name is cleared. In other words, God has every right to judge me because he does know all about it he knows all about it that's why he got off his throne and came to make the way for you and I you get the picture what a great love who else loves us like that so what do we get when we put these three verses together in the context everyone will be judged whether Jew, Gentile Everyone has been given a measure of knowledge about God. The Jew has been given the written law. The Gentile has been given a measure of light and conscience, which we've talked about already. You will be judged on what you knew, yet it will be more severe for those who knew the most knowledge, yet willingly ignored the truth. And on the day of judgment, at the great white throne, which we've talked about several times already, it will be too late to plead your case. In God's righteous judgment, handed out by Jesus Christ, who knows everything, will be impartial. That's what these verses are saying. That's what's happening here. But I don't want to leave it there. It's Father's Day. And we want to love our Father today. And He's so good to us to wait and to be patient with us. We have to talk about these things. This is what's here. And during our introduction, you remember, we talked about Jeremiah. And we talked about the imminent destruction that was coming at the beginning of his ministry. This is what he was sharing. But he didn't leave it there. If you recall, at the end of his ministry, in chapter 31, he gives a promise. The promise was to the nation of Israel, but as a result, it's to us as well. You know what that promise was? The promise of a new covenant. Let me read it to you. If you'd like, you can turn there. in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though i was a husband to them says the lord but this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days says the lord i will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people no more no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the lord for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them says the lord for i will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Now this is a promise to the Jew, to the nation of Israel. It went from a promise on a national level, now to a promise on an individual level. Amazing. And I understand there's a lot of information on this promise that We could go through and we can explain. Time doesn't allow us today, but I will say this. Although it's a promise to the nation of Israel, because we are grafted in during this age of grace, it's through this promise that Jesus came and died for the sins of the world. This is what the promise includes. And as a result, it is for us as well. Can you imagine God at the end of all of that saying, I am going to make a new covenant? with you but not the nation as a whole individual individual judgment does not come without opportunity to escape it and right now we have opportunity to escape it some of us have taken it some of us have not but if we continue to be willingly ignorant don't want to look at the evidence when we are standing there we will have no excuse And some of us will have more severe punishment. This is everything that he's saying. And as we next week, this was to the Jews and the rest of the chapter will be directed specifically to the Jew. We will be able to bring some things out of that. But as we insert, reinsert all of the parentheses next week, we'll get the picture in a more broader sense to those who don't have the law. And as you begin to ask those questions, Well, then what about these people who have never heard, you know, how is God going to be fair and judge them? And and again, this is about judgment and not salvation. Salvation, we'll get to that, but we have to keep that in focus. And what a great way for the Apostle Paul to approach the argument. From a place of repentance, hey guys, God's being patient, but he will only be patient for so long. This is the point. And he's backing him into a corner. Maybe you feel backed into a corner today in your life. Those of you who haven't accepted Christ, I pray that you are, so that you will break. It's either fight or flight. And I pray that you don't, that you flight, that you crumble and accept Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you. You are our Heavenly Father. You are a Heavenly Father who loves us. You do bring judgment, but you also are patient, patiently waiting for us to acknowledge you. And Father, we pray for those who don't know you, that they right now would say, Lord, I see who you truly are now, Jesus, and I want you in my life. I want to serve you. I want you to be my Savior. Those people today will be in paradise. If that's from genuinely in your heart, I pray that you truly see Jesus. And Lord, thank you to those of us who do know you, Father. We pray, God, that as we are walking down this narrow road and experiencing opposition every single day, that we would remember with that opposition comes opportunity opportunity to share you with somebody you bring us face to face with other people and lord may they see you in our eyes lord as we look into their eyes and we don't see life may it be our heart's desire lord to share with them who you are may they see that reflected in us lord we thank you father when we don't see what you're doing God, please give us strength and help because, Lord, we see things from such a human standpoint and we think we understand and we think we know what you're doing. And, Lord, we can get it so wrong and we can make claims, Father, that don't glorify your name and lead people down a wrong road. So help us, Lord, in our conduct, in our holiness, because, Jesus, you know our hearts. And, Lord, these passages are so difficult, even for the most seasoned pastor. And I pray, Jesus, that anything that I said that was incorrect, Father, that you would correct, that you would just wipe it out. Maybe we'll just edit it. (laughs) I don't know. But Lord, edit it from our hearts and minds and help your word to reside where we are empty. And Lord, we pray all these things. Go before us, Lord. We say Happy Father's Day to you. We thank and praise you now in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen.